So uh, what I'd like to do, though, this morning is ask you to turn in your Bibles to, uh, to John chapter 16. And this verse is, is primarily the jump off verse for my message today. Uh, Steve thought after he reviewed my message that maybe we should break it out into two sermons, but I, I only have enough confidence to do one. So, <laughs> so and I, I appreciate your patience. John 16, verse 7, John 16, 7. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just give you praise and honor and glory this morning. Everything that we do and say this morning, we want to be to your benefit, to your glory. Father, we're worshiping you. We're attributing worth to you because you are worthy of it. And Father, we look at this verse and we see that you are so compassionate, so loving and kind to us that you didn't want to leave us as orphans when you left the earth, that you promised the helper, the great Holy Spirit, to be with us, Father, to empower us, Father, so that when you left, Jesus Christ is living in each one of us who knows you intimately. And so, Father, I pray that your word would pierce our heart. I pray that we would get it right, Father. And I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus in an intimate way, that is not in a position to claim him as their Savior and their Lord, that they do so today before they leave the building. And we give you all the praise and honor in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know, I feel kind of like the old preacher that uh, said, you know, um, in my in my message, I'm actually sitting on the front row preaching to myself because, uh, you know, this morning is a topical message. And I learned these particular concepts over 40 years ago. And the name of my message is called How to Walk in the Spirit. And when I discovered this particular concept 40 years ago while I was in college, I was really floundering in my faith. I'd been brought up in the church by a godly mother and by some very godly influences that were able to help steer me and and direct my path. God used them in some mighty ways. But you know, in college, you go to a secular school and sometimes they kind of get you off path. path. They they get you to think about some other things that are not really God-honoring. They're more secular in nature. And so I thought maybe... Maybe there wasn't very much to the faith and, and until somebody got a hold of me and, and shared with me the power of Christian living. And so uh, the name of this passage or this sermon is going to be How to Walk in the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, I, I think most of us would want to, to do things right if we were told how to do them. Okay? And I'm kind of a laundry list kind of person. If you give me like a list of ten things, I can do them because I can kind of check them off. You know? And I'm real good at doing that. Now, there's other people in this, in this room primarily engineers like Dirk and, and Darren and Ray in the back there, they, they figure these things out ahead of time, you know. But I'd rather, Dirk, you figure these things out first, and you tell me how to do it, and I'll do it, okay? I'll go ahead and follow your instructions, and I'm pretty good at doing that. And so we're going to give you kind of a laundry list at the end of things to do, how to walk in the Spirit. And my goal this morning is to... Uh, as we go through the scripture is to learn a little bit more about the Holy Spirit and his ministry, what we call his agency. That's an old term, his agency for what he does and how he works effectively in our lives to produce fruit and holy living. So 
It's a three-part message, naturally. Everything, every sermon's got to be three parts, right? Part one is the Holy Spirit in action. And what I'd like you to do is, is go back to the book of Acts here for a second. We're going to kind of do a little review of what Darren talked about, what he read from the scripture here, Acts chapter 2. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit in action this morning. And I asked my, my group, my flock, to pick out ten things that they, they see that the Holy Spirit was responsible for doing. So evidences of the Holy Spirit, as it were, on this day of Pentecost. And so what we want to do is kind of run through those things very, very quickly. We'll not spend a lot of time on them, but uh, I think they're significant. Because, you see, it's in the details that we understand the working of the Holy Spirit in the church and in our lives. And so look at... Uh, Chapter 2, and we'll start out with verse 4. We see that the Holy Spirit fills the believers that were assembled at that point, And they are evidencing the power of the Holy Spirit by speaking in other tongues. And these are known tongues. I believe that there was an evangelistic purpose behind why the Holy Spirit decided to go ahead and give them this gift. Because there were other people in, in town from different countries that needed to hear the gospel in their own language. And they were amazed. And so the power of the Holy Spirit came upon these believers. They began to speak in other tongues, known languages. And then in verse 14, we see Peter stand up. And Peter is speaking with great power and great conviction. And he's very fearless. In fact, if you think about it, 40 days before Peter spoke, what had happened? Christ had been crucified. The disciples were scattered. It appeared like the, the great movement was over at that point. But of course, Christ returned, showed himself, and then promised that they would be indwelled with power from the Holy Spirit. So he speaks with great conviction. We're not going to go over his sermon, but we will bring your attention to verse number 23. He is so powerful and so confident and filled with the Holy Spirit at this point, he actually tells his Jewish brethren... You're the one that killed the Messiah. You crucified the one that was brought to you. You nailed to a cross his hands. You're the godless men that did this. What fearlessness. Unbelievable. He's speaking to these people that crucified the Lord just days before. And so as we go through this, we go down to verse number 37. We find that the Holy Spirit convicts these people. They are pierced in the heart. They are coming under great conviction that they did, in fact, crucify their Savior, their Messiah. And they say, brethren, what should we do? How can we possibly change this terrible wrong? And in verse 38, Peter says to them, repent. Now, I like that because one of the things that I've been brought up with is kind of a, a mishmash, kind of a, kind of a squeaky, squishy gospel that says, you know, God's got a wonderful plan for your life, which he does. But I like this particular approach because he says, first of all, he says, you've sinned. You've crucified the Messiah. It's time for you to repent. You need to turn from your sin, turn from your wicked way, and be baptized, and then receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 so it says, Then those that received the word were saved. 3,000 people at one time. The Holy Spirit affects his work in those people's lives 
and they are truly saved. Now, it wasn't just a bunch of people just raising their hand saying, yeah, I want, I want Jesus as my Savior. Don't know about Lord, but I want Him as my Savior. Okay? Because after verse 42, we begin to see the fruit of repentance in these believers' lives. What happens? Well, here's what happens in verse 42. They continually devote themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. They're starting to sit underneath their preachers. They say, I can't get enough of this. They say, I need to hear the word preached. This is different. They begin to have great fellowship together. They have a love to want to assemble together. And they break bread and pray together. Verse 43 says, Everyone felt this sense of awe. The Holy Spirit was enabling the disciples at that point, or the apostles as it were, to do great works. We don't know what works they were. We do go through the rest of the book of Acts and we find out what, what else was, was done in the early church. But we don't know what happened at this point. But they had this sense of awe, this sense of wonderment that something special has happened in our town. Something wonderful has happened in my life. And I want to go ahead and I want to continue to stand under the apostles' teaching and have fellowship and to have the breaking of bread, to have our meals together. And here's something else that happened. This is really remarkable. Verse 44 says, And they were considering that all things they had together were they held in common and began selling their property and possessions for anybody who was in need. It was kind of like this. Let's say Thomas meets John on the, on the streets of Jerusalem and says, uh, uh, John, I, you weren't at temple the other day. And John says, well, my, my chariot's in the shop. I wasn't able to get there, you know. And Tom says, well, hey, well, here's the keys to mine. Just take mine. And in matter, matter of fact, don't just use it. You can, you can have it. I don't need it. Take my chariot. <laughs> I don't know if they had chariots. Did they have chariots, Darren? I don't know in those days. But I do know this, that people were there giving of their abundance. Nobody had to make them. There was no state. There was no welfare state to make them do these things. It was the church reaching out to one another. Those are fruits of repentance where they're willing to give from their wallet, from their checkbook, from their pocketbook or whatever. Verse 45 or 46 says this. It says, day by day they continue with making with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house and they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now, here's what I see about Rock Valley Bible Church. We're doing the same thing. These people went to church. They went to temple. But they also had small groups. They had flocks. You see? They had flocks. And so you can't tell me that, you know, they weren't meeting in the temple because it says they were. They were meeting together in the temple. They were sharing from the word of God and they were fellowshipping with one, one another, not only in the temple, but in their homes. And they were praising God in verse 47. You see repetition occurring. You see them leading other people down the same path. You see witnessing. You see testimony. You see lives changed. And so what we see here is we see the power of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And we'll see more of it in the weeks and months ahead as we read through Acts. It wasn't by chance that we decided to go through Acts. It was with a purpose. We wanted to see what the model church was all about and what it should be for us. So the acts and experience of the early church are sensational to read about. But the question is, are these just inspirational stories to kind of motivate us to experience the agency of the Holy Spirit? Or does the agency really work in our lives today? 
Well, let me give you an example. And um, uh, at the risk of, of using a, a personal experience or anecdote, whenever you talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, you've got to be careful about talking about personal experiences here. But I want to share with you something that occurred to me, actually to Karen and I, when we were in college together. And it demonstrates the, the agency or the power of the Holy Spirit during our lives at that time. It was life-changing. And in fact, it was changing for America. In 1972, June of 1972, America was still struggling to get out of the Vietnam War. And university campuses were still aflame with a lot of protest. In fact, when I was at University of Illinois, they burned down our ROTC building. That's how severe it was in 1972. It was still aflame with war protests. It was still the era of the hippie, the flower child, to make love, not war. And students were searching for meaning and purpose. And the conditions were right for not a political revolution at that point, but a spiritual revolution. You know, students were asking the question, I don't know if they still ask the questions today, is, you know, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Uh, is there anything else besides making a buck? Back in those days, those were really significant questions. And so many students were being challenged with philosophers like uh, Blaise Pascal. I don't know if you've ever heard of Blaise Pascal. He was a, a French uh, philosopher and mathematician who was a Christian. And he said this. He said that uh, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by the, any created thing, but by one, only by one God, the Creator, made known by Jesus Christ. Students across the country were beginning to embrace true purpose in life through Jesus Christ. And in June of 1972, something very significant happened in Dallas, Texas. And that event was described as one of the most significant Christian events to happen since the day of Pentecost. That was Christianity Today that said that. And there were some other publications that made such a claim. But that event was known as the International Student Council on Evangelism. Has anybody here ever heard of the International Student Council on Evangelism? How about Explo 72? Bonnie, I think you've heard of Explo. There were a few, there's a few people that heard of Explo 72. Explo 72 attracted over 180,000 college students and lay people for the purpose of doing worldwide planning to fulfill, and this is the, the theme, fulfill the Great Commission in this generation. The Great Commission in this generation. And through strategic planning, training, and uh, going out in the field, this generation was hungry to make an impact for Jesus Christ. And during those weeks that we were down in Dallas, Texas, the entire Dallas city of Dallas was canvassed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, in John 14, 12, Jesus talks about, you know, he who believes in me will do greater things than I do. Now, if you think about that verse, you know, what's greater than raising the dead? Well, there was something greater. Now, he talked about it numerically. And so the question is, was Explo 72 really an example of the moving of the Holy Spirit? A modern-day revival among college students. Well, let's talk about some of the impact. I know there were thousands of young people that were impacted to go into full-time Christian service. And 1972, that, that uh, Expo 72 was actually the brainchild of uh, Campus Crusade for Christ President and Founder Bill Bright. Anybody here ever hear of Bill Bright? Okay. We had a chance to spend time with Bill and 
Don Ed Bright one time on a cruise. It was a wonderful time and experience together. But Bill Bright was a businessman. He was kind of like me. He didn't have a lot of theological background. I did, you know, he didn't go to Wheaton College, I don't think. Um, which, nothing wrong with Wheaton College, Darren. I'm picking on Darren over here. Or Trinity. Okay, nothing wrong with Trinity either. He just wanted, he wanted to see young people one to Jesus Christ is what he wanted. And he had this vision that he could see with God's help and the Holy Spirit, he could see the Great Commission completed in our generation. So what he did is he took the founder of, of Expo, or the director of Expo 72, Paul Eshelman was his name, and he challenged Paul Eshelman to come with some, some kind of a device, some tool to take the momentum of Expo 72 and bring that message to the world. And so after a number of years of, of planning and working together, a film called The Jesus Film was created. Now, how many of you have ever seen The Jesus Film? Yeah, a lot of you have. Now, let me talk to you about the Jesus film and how the Holy Spirit used that particular film. It was one of the most powerful evangelistic tools ever known. And in fact, to this date, there were over a thousand, there's been over 1,049 languages it's been translated into in 228 nations. And the number of people who have viewed it to date, now this is by record, six billion people have seen the Jesus film. That's unbelievable. You know, in our book that we went through with David Platt's book, we were talking about the unreached people in the world. Well, one of the greatest inroads to the gospel of Jesus Christ was the Jesus film. Now, I'm not here to, to lift up Bill Bright or Campus Crusade because, you know, many of you can testify of how the Holy Spirit has worked through a ministry of, of your own, like Farms or First Love International or LRI, some of these other things that we've seen where the Holy Spirit has worked in miraculous ways. And I've sat on boards where I, I don't know where the money came from. I don't know where the souls came But God brought great victory and His Spirit moved. But the Gospel is about experiencing the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Each and every day can be an exciting adventure for the Christian who knows the reality of being controlled, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit and who yields to his gracious control. It's an exciting adventure. But we do have some problems. We have difficulties. And Darren, in his prayer, I was listening very carefully to your prayer, Darren, you talked about some of the dysfunction in the church in the Old Testament. Yes, they had dysfunction there in the church. They did. Just as we have dysfunction today. Now let's talk about some of this dysfunction because one of the things that we see is that there's, there's conflict going on between the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the flesh. And Paul talks about it. If you turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, we'll talk a little bit about this. He describes this, this difficulty. And he says this, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For those are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So you've got flesh against spirit. Old nature against new nature. The old nature of the flesh doesn't go away. It's still there. It still rises up like an ugly sore in the believer's life, in the, in the Christian's life, in the church life. But there is a remedy. There is a cure for this old nature, for this flesh, and it's in the first line. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's the remedy. Walking in the Spirit or by the Spirit. Walking day by day. Walking in the Spirit. How is that done? Well, here's another part that we will spend time talking about. And that's in uh, 1, Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Another conflict that we see. And uh, Paul says this. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to babes, as to men in flesh, babes of Christ, in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Now, there's a lot of um, controversy as to whether Paul was speaking to Christians, and he does call these people brothers, by the way, but some theologians will say, well, they're not really saved. They really don't know the Lord. I'll leave it up to you to decide. But one of the things that we clearly see here is that you can't be walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh at the same time. It's impossible. There's a conflict going on there. Now, the question is, why is this conflict occurring? Well, I believe because there's a lot of misunderstanding about what's being preached in our churches today. And I can sit back as a layperson and say, I see it. A lot of pastors will avoid the concept of, or the, the, con, the, the concept or the, uh, the uh, concept of the Holy Spirit because they think it's going to lead to controversial issues. In fact, one of the, uh, Evangelical preachers that I read about says it's easier to preach what we are against rather than what we are for. He feels that if we don't, if we we avoid the subject of the Holy Spirit, then we won't get into other type things, Darcy, like charismatic gifts and things of that. And the reason I I kind of point to Darcy because she's kind of familiar with this. No, there's a conflict there in churches today, and a lot of people would just soon leave the Holy Spirit out of it, leave it alone. Well, One of the biggest problems that I see today in the church is what we call a man-centered gospel. And and Karen, you've heard that term before, man-centered gospel. That's where it's all about me and my happiness and my joy and my contentment at the cost and expense of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's wrong thinking. That's wrong theology. Well, here's something else to think about. There's something called a man-centered Holy Spirit as well. And so because of abuses, people that seek personal edification, misunderstandings, and all this mysticism, we don't understand what the cost of discipleship is all about. We think that uh, we're looking for that awesome, engaging experience that the Holy Spirit is supposed to give us. Now, that's a problem because if you go to churches where, where they want to see evidence of the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit and it's not there, then they're, they're hanging their entire theology on, on that experience. And that's wrong thinking. In fact, the, the scriptures say that a, a wicked and perverse generation seeks after a sign. We're not looking for signs. And so there's a lot of misunderstandings and controversy in the church today about the Holy Spirit. And so it's not what it's all about for me. It's what it's all about for Jesus. And as a result, many Christians don't understand that the ministry is important, and that there is something called being filled, which is controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And quite frankly, there's, there's some things that we have to understand about the Holy Spirit that is important 
Because one of the things that you know, we talk about Jesus, the, the son and, and God, the father. But one of the things that we don't understand about the Holy Spirit is that he is a person. He has all the rights to deity as the other two entities of the Trinity. And he is also offended in the same way that God the Father and God the Son is, would be offended. Now, let me, let me talk about some of these offenses. There's three offenses that the scriptures talk about. There's something called the sin of blasphemy. And Matthew 12, 31 talks about it. Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. That's where a person resists the Holy Spirit, where that person resists the call for repentance. Some people call it the unpardonable sin. It's where the Holy Spirit basically falls by the side. If you want to talk about the seed being sown in the road, it's where the birds would come and pluck it out and take it away. That's the first offense against the Holy Spirit. The second offense against the Holy Spirit is grieving the Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4.30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for redemption. You know, sins committed are going to grieve the Holy Spirit. It's, ca- it's going to cause the Holy Spirit to be distressed. And um, one of the things that we see as a result of being grieving the Holy Spirit is that, you know, there, the consequences can be confusion. Confusion about God's will for my life. Confusion about how to live a purposeful life. Now, I, I kind of like to talk a little bit about this because I, I kind of equate grieving the Spirit to grieving my wife. And, and, fellas, you might be able to identify with this a little bit. You know, at times, fellas, you have a tendency to, you know, you, you might make a mistake and say something that's going to grieve your wife. And this is how I can tell if I've grieved my wife. I'll reach over for her hand, and she'll go like that. Not only will I not be able to have her hand, but nothing else about her either. She kind of goes, no, no. If we grieve the Holy Spirit, he pulls his power from us. He doesn't want to have fellowship with us at that point. There's sin between us and God, and it grieves the Holy Spirit. That can be rectified. That can be forgiven. The first blasphemy cannot be forgiven, but, but this can be forgiven. The third offense against the Holy Spirit is quenching the Spirit. And Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. He says, Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Many times the Holy Spirit is represented by a fire. It's there to purge, to purify, to refine. And think about the Holy Spirit as being a red-hot branding iron that's going to, to touch our skin and give us the indelible mark of, of Jesus Christ. But instead of doing that, it goes into a bucket of water. It's quenched. It leaves. It's like gone, completely gone. And his agency is withdrawn from us completely. He has no influence over us at that point. Is it possible for that to happen to a Christian? Yes, it is. In fact, there is the name Ichabod that is used in the Old Testament. Ichabod, the spirit and the glory is gone. And so at that point, Christians are not living victorious lives. They're not overcoming sin. They're in bondage to sin. And the evidences are all around us today. The experience of people living in carnality or not walking in the spirit, legalistic attitudes, impure thoughts, jealousies, guilt, worry, discouragement, critical spirit, frustration, aimlessness, fear, ignorance of spiritual heritage, unbelief, disobedience, loss of love for God, for others, poor prayer life, no desire for Bible study, 
And many of these fleshly attitudes we're talking about are transferred to the church and as a result, we wonder why we have little impact on our society today. It's because those in the church are not walking in the spirit, they're walking in the flesh. They're walking in the flesh. And many times they're in bondage. We have to realize that the individual who professes to be a Christian but who continues to practice sin of walking in the flesh may not be a Christian at all according to Ephesians 5.5. 5. And of course, if you turn there, it says, for this you know that those who continue in immorality or impurity or covetous men don't have any part in the kingdom of God. I have a little story to tell you about this. Recently, I went to a funeral. One of my grammar school buddies passed away, and I saw it. He lived down in Kirkland, Illinois, over here, and, and I hadn't seen this man in 47 years. So I, I prayed to God, and I asked him to show me who I could minister to as I went to that funeral. Went to the funeral, looked in the casket. I didn't recognize that individual, because I haven't seen him since 1966. Now, some amazing things happened at the funeral that that I, I'm not going to have time to talk about today, maybe some point in the future, but, but there was one thing that happened that was really significant in my life. When I went, got back home, I, I texted a friend of mine. And this friend of mine had grown up with us in that grammar school. In fact, he had been in my church group, grown up in the church with me. We had served together in the military, been in business, in and out of business together for many years. And I gave him the bad news. I said, Rex, Rex died and his question to me is, well, whose funeral are you going to go to? Are they going to go to next? Is it going to be yours, Phil, or mine? And I texted him back and I said, well, I don't know whose it's going to be, but I'm ready. Are you? Well, of course, if I asked him, he's ready. He, he texted me back. He said, you, you've got to be kidding me, right? And I said, no, it's a serious question. Are you ready? And he said this. He said, well, we settled that when we were 11 years old. What we did is we walked an aisle together. We were baptized at the same time, and we claimed Christ at that time. But since those days, my friend has not lived for the Lord. He's lived in immorality. He's lived apart from Christ. If they were to try to convict him that he, you know, that he was a Christian, they wouldn't find any evidence of it. And I directed him to passages like Matthew chapter 7, where... Jesus says, well, some will say to me, Lord, Lord, you know, we've healed in your name. We've prophesied your name. And he says, depart from me. I've never known you. You see, there's no fruit of repentance in that friend's life. And we interact. And for the first time, he was honest about his condition. And I praise God for that. But that was to the death of a friend. Now, we have to be careful when somebody says that they're a Christian, that they go to church, that they may have walked the aisle or been baptized or um, raised a hand in a service or been to a Billy Graham crusade or whatever. We have to be careful whether we see fruits of repentance in that person's life. We can't automatically assume that they're in Christ, in Jesus Christ. Because if they are in Jesus Christ, we're going to see the fruit of repentance. We're going to see the fruit of growth. Part two, the Holy Spirit is our helper. So we talked about a little bit of the negative, what's going on in the church today. Well, what's positive about what's happening with the help of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit? And there's four or five different important questions that we need to cover with regard to who the Holy Spirit is. Well, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, it's those of you who've been around church for a period of time know who the Holy Spirit is. He's the third part of person of the Trinity, co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. 
Now, it's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, there's really only 17 passages that refer to the Spirit of the Lord. 17. That's it. 17. In the New Testament, there's many, many passages that refer to the Spirit of the Lord, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Another question is, why did he come? There's at least five reasons why he came. His mission, his number one mission is to glorify Christ, not the believer. Did you get that? Glorify Christ, not the believer. He's not here to glorify us or what we do. Okay? In John 16, 14, he says this. He says, He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit will glorify me because he's going to take from me and disclose it to you. In other words, he's going to give us the mind of Jesus Christ. You know, when, when we start out by saying, you know, it, it's, it's important that I leave because if I don't leave, you're not going to get the Holy Spirit. But if I go away, I'm going to send the helper to you. See, Jesus knew that he would only have a small impact on those around him, but the Holy Spirit indwells every single believer. And that's important to know. Because now we have the mind of Christ, just like Jesus Christ was right here with us today, standing right next to us. He came to glorify Christ. He came to lead us into all truth. John sixteen thirteen says, but, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will lead you into all truth. Notice he is called the spirit of truth. We'll know the difference between right and wrong. Now, when we say all truth, we don't mean everything there is to know out there about everything, do we? Jesus is just referring to those things that pertain to him. It's not general truth. It's very specific truth. Another one, he came to inspire men to write the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We know about that. Number four, he convicts men of sin and draws us to Christ. The old Puritan saying was that the Holy Spirit quickens men. To receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quickens men. In other words, changes that heart and gives them the capacity to respond. It's only by the Holy Spirit. I like the way a lot of authors say it. You know, man just doesn't jump on the salvation bicycle and start pedaling. Right? The Holy Spirit has to quicken men's heart. has to draw him to himself. In John 3, 5, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so we saw that in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit quickened or drew those 3,000 people to themselves, to himself. He also gives us the power to live and share the abundant life. And if I ask you to turn to Acts 1, 8, you probably don't need to turn there. You probably know it already. It says this, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. So he gives us the power to, to witness. And by the way, that power to witness is the same Pentecostal power that we saw in Acts chapter 2. The same Pentecostal power. And we know this to be a fact because... John 14, 12, 16, and 17 says that if we ask anything according to his name, he'll do it for us. If we ask the Father, he will give you another helper, that he will be with you forever. Now, what's really interesting about this is that we see the Holy Spirit of the Old Testament different from the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Holy Spirit of the Old Testament was very different in the way he was able to relate to Believers. In fact, 
Remember I mentioned that there's only 17 places where the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Old, in the whole, in the Old Testament. And what you saw is you saw the Holy Spirit being very select about who he indwelled in the Old Testament. They were usually prophets and uh, judges, people that were granted the Holy Spirit for, at a specific time for a specific purpose. And many times the Holy Spirit was withdrawn. And the Holy Spirit wasn't available to the common person. And the reason why is because Jesus had not come yet. Jesus comes in his glory in the New Testament in bodily form. He's resurrected from the dead, promises the helper. And now the agency of the Holy Spirit is evident and available to all believers, to those who were to ask, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because we have to talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we're empowered. We're controlled and empowered by Jesus Christ himself. Now, that's different from being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When we come to Christ and confess our sins to him and repent, and Christ becomes our Savior, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We know that to be a fact. But though all Christians are, not, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not all Christians are controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because of this flesh, old nature, new nature problem we have going on here. Now, what are the results of being indwelt, or excuse me, filled by the Holy Spirit? It says in John 7, 37, 38, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any of you thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can give out rivers of living water. And we have power to witness. That's the important thing I see here. When I understood the ministry of the Holy Spirit, back when I was in college, I understood what it meant to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and filled by the Holy Spirit. I began to see things in my life change like you couldn't believe. I began to have purpose in my life. The purpose was to glorify Christ and all that I said and do. I saw people one to Christ people that were coming to him and repenting. And I believe that when, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll have the confidence to witness for Jesus Christ. Not only will you have the confidence, but you'll see the results. You may not see it immediately, but down the road I believe that you'll see the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. Now, other things that we see as a result of what happens when people are filled with the Holy Spirit? In Acts chapter 4, we'll see another 5,000 people converted. We'll take a look at Paul's missionary journeys and see what happened there. But in John 15:8, there's a more immediate promise to us. John 15:8 says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, the promise of the Holy Spirit to us will tell us or will show us that we will bear much fruit. We'll actually bear much fruit. We'll have the ability to bear fruit and prove to be God's or Jesus' disciples. And not only that, but we're expected to bear fruit. Now, the question is, what kind of fruit are we talking about? There's all types of fruit. There's fruit that you all have here. We see fruit in this body displayed all the time. Fruit of love and caring and hospitality and, and so forth. But one of the big elements of, of this idea of fruit is duplication. 
witnessing, talking to other people about Jesus. I really believe that that's a big part of our ministry. In fact, we're told to make disciples. We're not told to go out there and just to do good works, which are important to do. We're told to make disciples. And how do we do that? Well, we have to go out there and we have to open our mouth up. We have to go out there and witness. I love it when, uh, and it's done in different ways, like, you know, Tom Wetech, he loves to give out tracts. I love to talk to people about Jesus. I'll talk to people about Jesus anytime, anyplace, anywhere. It doesn't make any difference where it's at. I'm not embarrassed to talk about Jesus. I hope you aren't. I'm not trying to build myself up here, but, you know, that's, that's part of what we're supposed to do. But the idea of greater works is that we are able to duplicate ourselves by winning, building, and sending other people. Discipleship-making process. It's the Holy Spirit alive and well in our lives. And our lives will overflow, overflow with the fruit of the Spirit. And I, I don't want to spend time going through that, but the peace, patience, kindness, loving, and joy, and all the rest that goes along with it. Now, one of the things about the Christian that's filled with the Holy Spirit is that they will start to experience changes in their life. Attitudes change. When the person is spirit-filled, attitudes will change. What type of attitudes? Attitudes toward their spouse. Their spouse. Attitudes toward money. Attitudes toward their enemies. Attitudes toward their jobs. Um, attitudes toward past transgressions that people have done against the ability to forgive people. Their ambitions are redirected. Relationships are changed. And we are living a new creation. In fact, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we will not be in bondage to those fleshly desires. But I say, walk in the Spirit and we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Why are most Christians not walking in the Spirit? Well, quite frankly, I think a lot of people are not receiving this information. They're not hearing it from a preacher. But that information is important because the information shows us how to deal with sin, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit. They live in uh, kind of a self-imposed spiritual poverty. Now, last year, here's something else, too. Last year, when I preached about Jeremiah, I talked about two concepts. One was FOF and one was FOP, FOP and FOP. Do you remember what those were? Fear of failure and fear of people. All right. Remember, Jeremiah was afraid of people and he was afraid of failure. I'm going to give you another one. F-O-G. Fog. Fear of God. The reason why people aren't filled with the Holy Spirit is they're afraid of God. They're afraid that God's going to change their plans. But they don't realize that God has a greater plan for them than they have. You know, it says in Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him that is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we say or ask or think according to the power that works within us, he's going to have a better plan. He may ask us to forfeit our American dream. You know, and I'll be very honest with you folks, that was my problem. The reason why I was a holdout to the Holy Spirit much of my life is because I was scared to death of losing all that I had. You know, when you live on commission for 30-odd years... You know, you, you develop a little bit more confidence in God's faithfulness to you. But when you first start out, you know, you think that poverty is just right around the corner. And you're fearful. You're fear that you might, fearful that you might not be able to afford your mortgage. And, and I've got all kinds of stories you've heard me tell about in times past. 
And so I just kind of held out in that one little area of finances, and that was enough to quench the Holy Spirit in my life. Where are you quenching the Holy Spirit in your life? Fear of God. Another fear of God is that he might ask us to do something impossible. But we have to understand that if he does, he may, he may ask you to do something impossible. He's going to supply your needs. Philippians 4.19 And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. All right. Last thing is that God might take all the fun out of our lives. Well, I guess it depends on what you call fun. Okay? You know, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, he redefines our idea of fun. You know, I have never had so much fun as I had in the last five or six years coming here. You folks are fun to be with. You really are. I look forward. You know, we're having an elders meeting at at my farm, you know, uh, in a couple weeks, you know, and and I'm looking forward to you guys coming out. We just have a great time. That, to me, is fun. Talk about things with the Lord. That's fun stuff. You know, God changes our attitudes. So we have no need to be in fear of God, F-O-G. Part three, and we'll wind it up here. The Holy Spirit in our response. Now, here's our call to action, folks. Our call to action. And there's two. I, I only have one in the notes, but there's really two calls to action here. The first call to action is the filling of the Holy Spirit. In order to walk in the Spirit, the first thing we have to understand is that we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And there's several factors that will contribute to it, and I call it heart preparation. What you can do is you can call it anything you want. I, you can call it uh, spiritual housekeeping, if you will. All right? And what that means is this, that we have to get our hearts right to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's where we start. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. We have to have an intense desire to be hungered, to, for hunger, for, uh, to be hungry for righteousness and a thirst after it. We have to have this intense desire to have the Holy Spirit uh, control every aspect of our life. Uh, and one of the biggest problems that we have in our churches today is that we have, it's easy for us to go trust God in, in, in uh, small ways and easy ways, but let's not talk about this other area that we have a problem with. That's kind of the holdout. That's the area that we're not going to want to surrender to Christ. Now, a big example of this is the idea of the rich young ruler. You probably remember that story. Jesus put his finger on that man's life and on his sin. Now, how he was grieving and quenching the spirit at that point because he said, you know, sell all, give to the poor, come and follow me. Couldn't do it. He gained the world, but he lost his soul as a result of it. So the first thing we have to do is hunger and thirst after righteousness, heart preparation. Next, what we have to do is we have to confess and repent of our sin, according to 1 John 1, nine. We have to do a self-examination. We have to look into our heart have an honest dialogue with God and say, you know, Jesus, I'm not kidding you. You know, I'm a, I'm a phony. I'm a hypocrite. You know, I say one thing with the mouth, but my heart is not right before. I've got to confess that before you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
The other thing we have to realize is David said in Psalm 66, he said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me at all. You can pray all day long. If you regard sin in your heart before the Lord, he's not going to hear you. You have to confess it. That's the first thing you have to do. Then you have to be willing to surrender the control of your life to Christ, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, the idea of the living sacrifice. But now by faith, claim the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Claim the fullness of the Holy Spirit according to two things. Number one is his command. In Ephesians 5.8, he says this. He says, 5.18, he says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation or pointlessness or an obstacle, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's an act. That's a certain uh, function that occurs. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we also do it according to his promise. God promises is that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, correct? He does. And he'll fulfill it. And 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says this. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So we know that if God commands us to be filled... What's he going to do? If we do by faith, he's going to fill us. But we have to be willing to confess. So our action, call to action number one, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Confess your sin. Ask for him to fill you with, your Holy, with his Holy Spirit. All right. Now, here we are walking in the Spirit. But the question is, what happens when we sin? And this is a wonderful concept that I'm going to share with you that I learned 40 years ago. It's not my concept. It was actually created by, by Bill Bright. It's called spiritual breathing. How many of you ever heard of spiritual breathing? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, Bonnie, I know you have. You folks have. Spiritual breathing, exhaling the impure and inhaling the pure. Okay, it works like this. Exhale, you confess your sins. As soon as you become aware of your sin, the Holy Spirit will put his finger on your life and say, Phil Gusky, you're sinning in that area. Phil Gusky, you've got to make that relationship with your wife right, which I had to do last night. <laughs> Are we right? Okay. <laughs> Good. Phil Gusky, you've got to confess that right away because as soon as you start putting it off and stewing it, you're going to start walking in the flesh. Exhale. Confess your sin. Agree with God concerning that sin. Be specific about that sin. Now, I've seen people... Take this concept and go back years to people that they have wronged. Years ago, people that they had wronged went back, confessed their sin to these people. You know, Scripture says before you bring gift up to the altar, go to your brother. If he's got ought against you, go to him. Ask for the forgiveness. Go back to those people. Confess your sin to them. Confess the sin to God. You know, that sin will grieve the Holy Spirit. And if we're not careful, we'll actually end up quenching the Holy Spirit. So then we don't want to eat milk anymore or drink milk. We want to have spiritual meat to eat. I really believe that the majority of Christians in our churches today kind of plateaued right here. You know, they, they just have what I call get by with religion. Just enough to kind of make them feel good on Sunday, but not enough to where they feel uncomfortable, where they've got to go do some things that are we're going to be really stressful for them. 
like confess to other people. Confess to one another. Seek forgiveness. Claim humility. Go with hat in hand. So ex- exhale. That's the first thing you've got to do. Claim God's command according to 1 John 1, 9. Second thing you need to do is inhale. And that's to appropriate or ask for the fullness of the Holy Spirit according to his promise that if we ask according to his will, he'll do it. All right. Well, we're ready to finish up here. But one of the important things about walking in the Spirit is that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope that you caught that, that it came through loud and clear. And again, I'm going to say what Paul said in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, let me give you a little help here that, that you can use. And, and um, you know, in, in terms of fullness, full, fullness of the Holy Spirit or filling, being filled with the Holy Spirit, um, simply, I, and, and the fellow that was helping me with this concept years and years ago said, Phil, it's real easy. It's just praying to God. And I said, well, how do you pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit? He said, well, let me give you an example. He says, pray something like this. Lord, I acknowledge my sin. Fill in the blank to you. And then as a result, I've taken control of my life. And as a result, I'm walking in the flesh. I'm not walking with you. I confess that to you. Father, please forgive me according to your command to confess in 1 John 1, 9. And so, Father, forgive me. Now, fill me with your Holy Spirit according to Ephesians 5, 18. And now, walk by faith. And then spiritually breathe after that. So, real simple prayer. Just confess, claim the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and Walk in the Spirit. So there shouldn't be any confusion about how to live a Christ-centered, Christocentric, Holy Spirit-filled, sanctified life when we understand the concept of walking in the Spirit. So I would recommend you take those notes home, go over them again with your family, use that as kind of a, a field guide, as it were, to help you to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we just give you all the praise and honor and glory today for your Holy Spirit. Father, that part of the Trinity which we so sadly neglect, Father, forgive us for not giving him the prominence in our lives and the ability to control us and empower us the way we should. Father, now there's no doubt in our mind that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit so we no longer walk in the flesh. Father, may we see great abundance in believers' lives in this group right here. May they be doing great things for God. May they jump on the, uh, the task of, of fulfilling the Great Commission in this generation, Father. We love you, Lord. We ask you to be with us now as we go our separate ways. And we love you, Jesus. Amen.